Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is testing the boundaries of reality. My guest, Professor Bruce Olaf Solheim, is a professor of history at Citrus College in Southern California, a specialist on the Vietnam War and America's other wars. He is also the teacher of a course on Paranormal Personal History and the author of three books about his own paranormal personal history, Timeless, Timeless Deja Vu, and Timeless Trinity. He has also authored a new comic book series called Snark about an alien visitor to Earth. And our topic today will deal with ostensible alien abductions and even human-alien hybrids. Once again, this is an internet video, and so now I'll switch over to the internet channel. Welcome, Bruce. It's a pleasure once again to be with you. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's great to, uh, great to be back on the airwaves here. Yeah. We had a very interesting conversation uh, last time we spoke about uh, your contact with Ianzar and uh, uh, your experiences uh, with Yvonne getting involved in hypnotic regression. But uh, I had the feeling after our last conversation that we were just scratching the surface, that there's a lot more to the story. So I thought it'd be a, a nice idea to come back and uh, revisit it once again. And I'm also interested in exploring with you uh, as an academic Professor of history, uh, how you you view these stories when you put on your academic lens? Right, right. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think that's a good tack to take. Maybe I'll just jump right into it by uh, bringing up the fact that uh, during one of your, uh, I believe it was one of your spirit walks when you're conversing with your guides, uh, the notion came up that you yourself. We're a hybrid, right? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting one, which still kind of perplexes me. You know, I mean, I, I get this information, and I know that uh, the information that I get is it's somehow uh, it's not always as clear as I you know as you and I are talking now. It's more symbolic language, and that's why I have trouble sometimes remembering. That's why I have to record it so I can try to remember what they were saying. But from what I understand uh, and what Gene told me, he told me that we are the aliens. So that gives me a clue that, well, we're all related. So maybe this idea of, you know, being a hybrid doesn't necessarily mean like it's the first generation, you know, or second generation or what, you know what I'm saying? It's not like, uh, you know, my dad was an alien and my mom was a human or something, you know. So I think it's it's more of that sense is what I'm getting. Now, uh, let, since you brought up your friend Gene, uh, Gene is uh, a friend of yours uh, who is deceased with whom you're communicating. So, uh, because you have mediumistic capabilities, you're engaging in these conversations with both deceased people and with aliens, and they seem to know a little bit about each other. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, my theory is that, uh, and there's others who I think, uh, think this as well, uh, that the alien world, the spirit world, the quantum world are really kind of all the same thing. So they seem to be able to navigate the same, you know, from the same place. If there is such a place, you know, it, it, not in the terms that we say place, but, you know, uh, space, I would say is probably a better term than place. But, uh, yeah, and I've had ongoing conversations with him, and I wanted to add, I can't remember if I said this last time, but Ginger said something very funny when, after our last conversation, she, she, <laughs> she always grounds me, right? So she said, now, you're, you're pretty smart. Are, are you sure that you're not just out there talking to yourself? That's what she told me. <laughs> now, that's a good yeah. question. It made me laugh. It was very funny. 
And, you know, I thought more about it and I thought, well, uh, no, I don't think so. But I think there is a part, and I think we talked about in terms of consciousness, that there is a part of me that is part of Anzar anyway. Now, Gene, he was a separate, you know, human being. So I don't think that I'm out there talking to myself and, you know, you know, some kind of delusion. Uh, because I, you know, Gene responds back to me, and I've shared that information with his sister, things that I wouldn't know. But for instance, I'll give you an example. Uh, his, uh, uh, when I was talking to him, when I first started really communicating with him on these spirit walks, he told me, uh, he, I asked for something that would be proof of life after life, because that's what the loved ones want. And uh, he told me, he showed me these knots, like, like, like a ship's knots, you know, and a, and a heavy rope. You know, so that's all he showed me. And, and so I told that, I said, he showed me knots. And, she, and his sister said, that is so interesting because they have their wedding rings were, uh, him, Gene and his wife, were these knots, you know, the, in the shape, you know, sculpted that way. And they had a very special knot on their back fence, you know, the, the gate to their fence, which I never seen their back gate to their fence. They live up in Seattle or lived up in Seattle. So she said that's of great significance to them. So that you saying that shows me that he's communicating something that I wouldn't know. So that leads me to believe I'm not just talking to myself. Although it was a funny, it was a funny question that she asked, and it would be a natural question too, I think, you know, especially a person who's imaginative, you know, which I am. I'm a writer. So, you know, you, she would naturally say, are you sure you're not talking to yourself? But uh, I am I am sure. I am sure. It's sort of an inner knowing, I guess, at some point that it, you have to trust your intuition. Yeah, you have you have to you have to uh, trust in yourself, trust your intuition, go with it. And, uh, you know, this idea of the experience then gives you more of a belief and the belief allows more experience. That's what Gene has always told me. And uh, so you get further and further into it. But every once in a while, I know we're going to talk about the academic angle here, you have to stop and question yourself. You know, is this really happening? Because naturally, I don't live in this spirit world, quantum world, alien world all the time. I mean, that's just for my spirit walk. And the rest of the day, I turn it off and I do what everybody does. And so... When I do that, sometimes that arises, you know, that, that idea arises, you know, is this real? I mean, that's a natural thing. You know, the question that she asked, that's why she made me laugh when she said it, is because I want to make sure it's real. And I'm convinced it is. But still, there's always those, those lingering doubts, especially when you get into the, uh, the academic, uh, you know, pursuits that we're, in, that we're involved in and in trying to deal with that world. And, uh, and trying to explain this. They don't always mesh very nicely, let's just say that. As a historian, you're well aware of the human propensity for folly and error. Yeah. In fact, I did a, I was going to be on a, uh, a show. It, it, I got, uh, it's a typical Hollywood story here in L.A. Uh, there was a show, I won't name the show, but anyway, there was a celebrity that was going to be the star of it. And then they had certain uh, academics that had paranormal experiences that were going to be part of it, kind of explaining stuff. And I was going to give a historical background of how uh, spiritualism started in America uh, before the Civil War. And uh, so it, 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 was a, it was a great experience because it caused me to do you know, my historical research, but about something that I'm also very interested in in a, in a different sense. And so I, I was all prepared for it. I thought, this is going to be great, you know. And then a week before shooting, I got the call, you know, oh, you're out. We're, we're going to bring in professional psychics and, you know, people that are more photogenic or whatever. I don't know what, younger, whatever. And I said, that's fine. You know, it's okay. You know, I, it, you know, I still got my day job, so it doesn't matter. But um, it did cause me to, to look, at, you know, from a more historical perspective, this idea of spiritualism, which I'd always, you know, heard about the Fox sisters and stuff. But I really wanted to, and Edgar Casey and all that, but I wanted to get more into it, which I did. So there was a nice meshing of the two worlds there. I uh, often wonder, um, 
about uh, the potential for creativity that, you know, a, a small percentage of human beings write novels, science fiction novels, but it seems to me a much larger percentage of people might have the ability to write novels, uh, only that it gets channeled in other ways. And uh, so one hypothesis in, in your case, for example, would be that you're, you're a frustrated uh, science fiction writer and, and this is how your creativity is expressing itself. I, you know, I think about that, especially when we talked last time you mentioned, very uh, kindly mentioned my comic book, Snart, which yeah. I bring, uh, it, it is fictional, but behind the fictional, you know, humor and the his, history and the odd twists and turns in the, in, the, uh, in the comic book is some of my experiences that I'm having, that I've had in the last few years. So I, I weave that into it. And it, it often seems as, you know, a friend of mine who's a novelist said that uh, that fiction is actually more true than nonfiction. So he's often said that. David Wilson, who's a Vietnam vet and a very, very accomplished writer, kind of my writing mentor in many ways. And, uh, yeah, he, he told me that a long time ago. Well, you know, uh, it's just a couple of days ago, I interviewed Whitley Strieber. The man has written dozens of books about his, uh, both his alien abduction and his ongoing contact that he refers to as communion with alien beings. And of course, he's a very talented writer of horror stories. So, <clears throat> Uh, I can tell you right now, I take his uh, assessments at face value uh, of his experiences, and I take yours as, as well the same way. Uh, but I also feel like uh, that doesn't um, excuse us from the responsibility to think critically about these things. No, you're right. And I've, I've read his, his new book. Uh, I think it's called A New World. Uh, I think it's called A New World, yeah. And uh, I, I haven't read Communion, oddly enough, you know, which is interesting because, in a way, I didn't want to go into uh, more of the uh, – a lot of the canon, of, you know, when I started writing about all this because I didn't want to – what do you call it, confabulate or whatever, you know, kind of – so I, I wanted to make sure that it was just my stuff and, and you know, which can happen if you're not careful. So I will I will read it. But I did read his his latest book. Actually, it was an audio book. So I did an audio book uh, version of it, and uh, I, and it was great because he read it himself, which is more interesting. Uh, which is what I did with Timeless Trinity. I, I read it myself rather than get the voice actor or whatever. And I think it it adds a lot to it. But uh, yes, I, I, well, I, I appreciate that. And yes, we do have an obligation as academics or just anybody. To uh, you know, to look at things and and to question them. I mean, to ask, you know, not to be a professional debunker, but to be slightly cynical—not slightly cynical, but just slightly apprehensive—to just accept at face value what you hear. But if it starts to make sense and the person has credibility and they have a certain continuity, then I think it starts to jive together, and you can say, okay, well. There is something here. I mean, astrologically speaking, my rising sign is Libra. So I'm always weighing and balancing and looking at, you know, it could be this, it could be that. I'm perfectly comfortable uh, posing alternative hypotheses and saying uh, I can't yet decide amongst them. Uh, but in your case, now you're having these ongoing experiences. You, uh, you know, it's a lot different for you. I don't have, I don't go on spirit walks, uh, on a regular basis as, as, as you do. So, uh, I think when you're having the experience, uh, it's a little harder to sort of step outside of it. You're really engaged, uh, in this process. Well, that's true. And, uh, and lately, uh, you know, the last few uh, couple months, you know, we've been in this lockdown mode. So I've been going on spirit walks every day, which uh, normally I would go maybe three or four times a week, which is still a lot. But I've been doing it very, you know, religiously, but not, you know, no pun intended there. But uh, and it there's a certain pattern that develops uh, from that. And I think that it becomes easier. It becomes easier to get into the the right mindset, the right frame of mind. I, I like to, 
when I ask my spirit guides to help me, I always ask them to help me rise to the highest level of consciousness or vibration or whatever you want to call it so that I can communicate with those in the spirit world, the alien world, and the quantum world. That's the way I phrase it. So I have a certain thing that I say before I start. And, of course, I ask for protection. And uh, so it, it's become, I'm not going to say routine, because I, I don't think any of this could be really be routine, but it is much more, uh, uh, I'm getting, uh, it's much more regular. And it, it's maybe not as sensational as it was when it first started for me. It's like, okay, I talked to Anzar today, and, you know, if somebody was to hear me say, well, who the heck is that? <laughs> so it, it, it becomes, I don't know if it's the new normal, but it becomes more acceptable in daily life. But it is important uh, to step away from it, which is nice when you have, when I have somebody like Ginger who is not into that world herself. So not that she dis, not that she discounts my experiences, but she she doesn't like double down on it and reinforce it. Although she did have an interesting uh, paranormal event happen a couple days ago, which uh, kind of challenged her her a little bit. I know uh, in your book you describe hoping that Ginger will get to see a UFO. Yeah, I thought that would be very helpful and. And I've asked uh, Ansar if that would be possible, and he's always very coy about it. You know, it'll if it's going to happen, it'll happen, or it might happen soon, or we'll see. You know, that type of a thing, kind of that Zen answer. We shall see. You know, <laughs> but uh, she did see an anomaly. It was a light anomaly in our bedroom, and I was asleep, and it was a, in a butterfly shape. And I asked her. I said, "Was it shadow or was it light?" And she said, "No, it was light, and it was moving." And she, it said it reminded her of a butterfly. And I said, well, how big was it? And she said, well, it was six to eight inches across. So obviously it wasn't a butterfly, unless it was the biggest butterfly ever. And it was light, and it was dancing around and then in the corner of our bedroom, and then it settled back down and was gone. And I, I asked her why she didn't wake me up, and she said, because it was over so quickly. And she said, I have to really, I had to process it. What, am I awake? Am I asleep? What, you know, but she was awake. So... I think that was very helpful for her. She got a little glimpse of something. Now, I don't know what it was. I don't know what it represents. You know, it could it could represent uh, one of my, uh, uh, you know, my guardian angel, uh, or it could be some other anomaly. I'm not sure, but, that, you know, she did experience it, which I think is helpful for her So and for me because I think it connects us a little bit more so she can see a little bit of what, what I'm experiencing. And I think that's good. And maybe it should just come a little bit at a time. Maybe you don't want the the full thing right away. <laughs> that would be too much. Well, in your book, you describe uh, your contact with your deceased friend, Jean, uh, your contact with Anzar, uh, who you describe as an alien. And then there are two spirit guides, as I recall, Ozzy and... Uh, Forget the and, other name. Theodora, yeah, male and female, yeah. Theodora is more like an angel-like character, uh, and Ozzy is more. If you could, if I could describe him, he looks like a an elder, uh, uh, like a Native American elder in profile, very strong profile, and he he doesn't talk. He's kind of a I call him the bouncer, you know, because he kind of keeps. When I'm in the spirit walks, he keeps uh, those entities away that are more of the energy draining type or maybe even malevolent types, uh, which when I first started doing these spirit walks, I wasn't careful enough. And uh, I would get inundated like uh, like a bunch of people trying to brush through a door. That's kind of how it seemed like to me. And I would just be hearing all kinds of stuff and requests and demands. And, and I don't think they were all bad. I don't think these were all bad entities, but... Speaking to other psychics, they said, "Oh, you can't, you can't just open yourself up like that. You've got to have somebody to, you know, kind of check people at the door, kind of like the way Hollywood celebrities have the gatekeepers. You know, they don't just let the public come at them every day. <laughs> they have people you got to go through agents or whatever, and that's kind of the role that that he plays. And uh, Theodora is more of a, uh, she doesn't have that much. She's a protector as well, but not in that kind of respect." In different ways. So, but yeah, those are those are the people that I deal with. I, I also communicate with my parents and my uh, my sister who passed away in 2014. Not as often with her, 
And then uh, a couple of my cousins, uh, one in particular, uh, and uh, and people who I'm asked if I'm asked by a friend or a colleague, can you contact this person? Like we had a colleague who just passed away, and I was able to get a hold of him. Uh, so that was nice for me, and it was nice for the person who asked asked me. Actually, there were two of them who asked, and I was able to make some kind of contact. So that always makes me feel good. And I never ask if I'm right. I, I think we talked about that last time. It's really important not to try to quiz that. Hey, did I get this right? Am I? Did they? You know? Did, did they really tell you this? I just want to be helpful, and they always respond back to me. Thank you very much. So whether I was totally correct or not, they felt better as a result. So, and because I'm not, there's no money exchanging hands, you know, I'm good with it. Now, I thought one of the uh, most interesting conversations you had uh, had to do with your friend Terry, the one who actually got you started thinking about UFOs and aliens and the possibility of abduction. Yeah, we, we've had an ongoing, a lot of very interesting conversations. And uh, he, uh, you know, like I said, when I first met him, I was on a radio show. And uh, so I didn't meet him in person, just on the radio. And we struck, kind of struck up a friendship. And he's spoken to my class a, a few times uh, as a guest speaker. But uh, our friendship developed uh, at a distance, you know, and uh, he his story was it was very hard at first to ex, ex, accept that i mean not that it wasn't hard to it wasn't hard to accept it was just so the boggle factor was high so i had to really get into it read his book talk to him more it's not that i ever doubted him it's just i needed some reinforcement and then as i started a conversation with anzar about terry it became clear that part of my mission and I call it a mission, like I had in the military, is one of the things I'm supposed to be doing is helping him. Because he kind of, he elevated very quickly in the, I guess, the UFO world. His book was a bestseller and so forth. And he had a lot of demands put on him. And uh, I don't want to speak out of turn. I guess he should speak. But, you know, a lot of people contacted him, not just fans, you know, or UFO, you know, UFO people, but also other people that uh, are interested in his experience, you know, because he had, his was in the military and there was a military component to it, uh, where the, uh, the military intelligence and the Air Force debriefed him. And uh, so it, it caught the interest of a number of people. Let's just put it that way. I, I don't want to spill the beans for him or whatever, but uh, that, you know, that, that led to some very interesting conversations between me and him and just reinforced this idea that, you know, that the, uh, the UFO community is not just a lunatic fringe. You know, there might be some people that are out there for whatever reason, and I'm sure they're not, you know, doing any harm. But then there's, there's people who I think have had very real experiences and they need to be taken seriously and not just shuffled away as, you know, part of a, uh, a you know, a, 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 a crowd of, of, of loonies or something, which I don't, you know, I, I don't think I wouldn't want to say that. But there are people who kind of are on the edge, too, of that. And uh, so, yeah, our conversations have been, uh, he, he accepted Anzar right away, and he asked me to ask certain things. Uh, like one of the things was uh, he had in his mind this idea of something happening in February of this year. And it had been planted in his mind. And last year, uh, almost a year ago, Anzar had told me, he didn't tell me there was going to be a, a virus or whatever, you know, he didn't tell me that. But he told me that there was going to be a series of calamities, and, uh, and, and they would be, you know, pretty big. And, uh, there, but he didn't give me any dates because uh, Anzar always said there's too many variables and uh, part of it, I think, is because maybe I can't handle it. I don't know. But what he always says is there's too many variables involved. And he said uh, 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 predictions are often wrong, but preparations are never wrong. So I, take, I took that to heart. So I gave that advice to Terry, and he very much appreciated that. And uh, so I made preparations. And actually, Ginger almost instinctively made preparations, too, so... Uh, in the past six months or so, which is kind of interesting. So I'm not saying I'm a, 
you know, I can predict the future and, you know, far from it. I just think there is some kind of signal line that was coming through, not just with me, but with Terry and a number of other people that indicated that preparations are in order. And uh, so I don't think that's ever a bad idea. But, you know, if you say the world is going to end tomorrow, I mean, you know, that kind of stuff's been going on for a long time. I think it's been made fun of and, you know, people have been, you know, the people with the signs, you know, or whatever, that you classic that, you know, you see. But uh, I, I just think that uh, I, I really appreciate the friendship I have with him. And it's a very, it was a very deep friendship that happened right away. We, we had a shared experience in 1977. That's one of the experiences we talked about the last time we spoke. Um, we both had that experience in 1977, which is kind of interesting. I don't think uh, coincidental. In your book, you talk about uh, Terry, uh, where he lives, uh, there are lots of helicopters uh, over overhead above his house, and and you you question your guides about what's going on there. Yeah, I I did, and well, and then Terry asked me to identify some of them because I was a helicopter pilot in the army, and of course Ginger is a she doesn't fly right now, but she's a professional helicopter pilot, non-military. So we identified a number of the helicopters, so he knew what model and type they were, so he could do you know, check more into it, where they were coming from. But um, I, I did ask about it, and I think there was an element. I think some of them might have just been, you know, coincidentally helicopters flying overhead. And I think some others might have been uh, some type of surveillance, I think. So I, I don't discount that because he, like I said, without telling you, I, I feel like I can't say everything what he's told me, but – I've, there are a number of people interested in him, and uh, I don't discount the fact that this, this surveillance could be uh, not necessarily alien surveillance, but but somebody else. So uh, without getting into a big conspiratorial thing, I think there could be an element of that to it. So that's what I asked about, and that's kind of the answers I was getting, is that people are very interested in him. And I said, well, my question for Ansar was, why are they, uh, uh, if, if it's surveillance, if they just want to know what he's doing or whatever, they obviously have the ability to uh, to hide their actions. You know, why be so, you know, kind of non-transparent about, you know, about it? And they said, well, it's also intimidation. It's not just surveillance, it's intimidation, too. So there's both uh, from various groups. So that's, that's kind of the answer I got, and, and Terry appreciated that because that's kind of what he was suspecting. Well, now, Terry has been very public about his experiences, and, and now you are as well. So if if the purpose of the intimidation is to keep him quiet or to keep you quiet, uh, uh, that didn't work. It didn't work. It's not working. And that's the message I'm getting from Anzar is that you – well, the, 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 the phrase that I was given was stay in the light and be the light. And uh, so the idea that that can mean many things. One of the things about it is if you're out there talking about these things, uh, if there is somebody that's interested and maybe has maybe some not good plans for you or whatever, staying in the limelight will help, you know, that you document it, you put it in a book, you, you're out there talking about this. It becomes harder to, uh, to uh, you know, for something to happen or for people to, uh, you know, not necessarily like, you know, uh, you know, like an assassination or something, I'm not saying that, but like, you know, discrediting somebody, that kind of a thing, yeah. which is the more likely what people do with these kind of conspiracy things. So um, I think staying in the light is very important, and that's the message I'm getting. And, uh, yeah, so it's certainly not stopping him. It's not stopping me. Uh, I feel like I have protection and a lot of good people who are interested, so... Let me ask you about uh, the abductions. You, we talked about the one experience that you had uh, with your friend who you call Ernie in 1977 when you were out uh, sleeping overnight in, in the woods in, in, in a car. Um, but you, as I recall, you said there were four instances, and uh, one of them in your book you describe as almost a classical abduction experience. Yeah, um, the um, the experience that I had in uh, 1973. Well, I had four. One was in 1964, 
which was not uh, necessarily a classic abduction experience, but it was it was a very helpful experience. Actually, it turned out to be. Uh, 1973 would be more of a classic abduction experience, uh, and that was put together with the help of y Yvonne, and uh, and also a combination of my own memories, uh, conscious memories, and the uh, uh, hypnosis uh, with Yvonne. And then 1978 was a, was uh, a very interesting one because it was a rest. I call it a rescue operation. So all of them are a little bit different in, in character. But if I was to uh, like talk about the one in 1973, that uh, that was at Christmas time in my home in Seattle, and my aunt and uncle were visiting from Norway. And my aunt has, she's a whole other story. We could do a whole show just on my aunt. She was a, a Nazi collaborator in World War II. She was actually a member of the Gestapo. And she was responsible for the death of nine members of the Norwegian underground. Her job was kind of to lure them in. She was a very attractive lady, young lady. And she would lure these uh, members of the resistance in, and then the Gestapo would come in and capture them and, of course, torture them and kill them. So she did that and was living pretty high on the hog there in Oslo in the capital city. And after the war, she was uh, uh, prosecuted as a war criminal and sentenced to death. Uh, well, I don't want to go into the whole story. But anyway, a very interesting story. She didn't get put to death. She actually got out after nine years. So, but, so we had kind of this skeleton in our closet. I was never supposed to talk about my Nazi aunt. That's what my parents said, to keep it in the family, right? So, but they came to visit her and her husband, and um, my conscious memory is that she came to my room in the middle of the night after the whole Christmas celebration was over, and uh, I remember her, I remember waking up and she was in the doorway, and I thought, what is my aunt doing in the doorway? She shouldn't be here, you know, this is, I'm a 15-year-old boy, you know, why is she in my room? She's supposed to be staying upstairs. So, in my mind, I was thinking, my conscious memory was, well, she must have, you know, been, you know, thinking of, uh, you know, maybe molesting me or something, or something nefarious was going on. But I do have recollections of there, faint, you know, kind of faint recollections that there were these things around her, these entities around her. But I wasn't quite sure. It was very fuzzy. I did know that my cat freaked out. I do remember that my cat freaked out and jumped off the bed. So I approached Yvonne with this with those memories, both fuzzy and uh, actually, uh, you know, clear memories. And she said, I think there's something there. So in the uh, uh, hypnotic regression, uh, I got a lot more information. And I was able to find out that uh, those entities around her uh, were some kind of alien entities. And it might not have even been my aunt to begin with. Because the first question that Yvonne asked, you've had a lot of contact with your aunt over the years in Norway and, and in Seattle. Yeah, I, I said, I've seen her a lot. Have you ever known her to do this before? Has she shown up in your room? And I, I said, no. Well, that seems kind of odd, you know. And I, so I started, she kind of started with that premise. And then, and then uh, we went into the regression and I said, well, yeah, these entities, they, they don't seem human. And then even my aunt didn't seem human. There's kind of this... As I was remembering, uh, her face was kind of morphing into like this alien face, kind of a reptilian kind of look, a very scary look. And the next thing I know, I'm stood up, uh, kind of levitated up in, in bed. My cat's already jumped off the bed and freaked out. And I'm taken up through this, the, the ceiling, through the house, as if it didn't even exist, uh, like I was just particles. This is your hypnotic memory. Yes, the hypnotic regression. The next thing I know, I'm I'm in a uh, on the the classic setting, you know, on a table, and there are the little entities around me, and then there's a uh, not a reptilian, but an insectoid type alien, and he's the the doctor. I called him Doctor Bug. Uh, which is interesting because Terry and I have a lot of interesting experiences with Doctor Bug. I don't know if it's the same guy. But it sounds very much like the same kind of thing. And he wasn't, uh, he wasn't torturing me. Uh, he actually called it special processing. That's what he said. It was special processing. And he actually got mad at the little alien entities because they had some kind of clamp on my head. And it was hurting me. And he, and he told them, they're clumsy. You know, take it off. You know, he doesn't need that. And uh, there was some kind of a, an instrument that 
was levitating. It wasn't, they weren't holding the instrument. It was kind of being manipulated with their minds, you know, the move. And it looked like one of those lawn darts that are illegal now, but in the 70s, that you know, those, they're very dangerous lawn darts. It kind of looked like that. Um, I actually drew a picture of it later, uh, and of the insectoid Dr. Bug. But uh, he told me that, uh, you know, it was special processing, and I kept asking questions, and it was all telepathic. And uh, he said, well, you don't need to know any more than that. You know, there's, that's pretty much it. And at a certain point, I just kind of uh, lost consciousness. And then the next thing I know, I'm back in my bed, kind of settled into the bed. And so it's a very classic uh, kind of abduction story in that case. And uh, interestingly enough, when I was telling... Uh, this story after my regression with Yvonne, I was telling my cousin in San Diego, uh, her name is Brita, and she uh, told me that uh, she's had a lot of experiences too, so she's a fellow experiencer, I guess is what you'd call it. And I was talking about this Dr. Bug, and as I was talking to her about Dr. Bug in this restaurant in San Diego, this conduit on this post behind her started to shake wildly back and forth. I mean, just unbelievable how it was moving. And I said, do you see that? Look at when I, you know, look, turn around. She saw it and it was moving and then it stopped. So I said, I got to investigate. There's something strange here. So I went and checked it out and I thought, well, maybe it was uh, somebody had went by, but nobody came by. Maybe it's really loose or something, or maybe somebody in the top was messing with it. But no, it was, it was not easy to move. It wasn't the wind. It wasn't anything else. There was some kind of connection because I think both of us have had experiences and because I was talking about this guy, you know, it started. And then not long after that, uh, he came into my thoughts as I was preparing to go to sleep. And uh, because I continued telling the story, right? And he said, oh, so now you think you understand what's going on. And it was kind of in an intimidating tone, kind of in a mocking tone. Now you think you understand. Um, so you think you understand now. So I didn't get the sense that he was a bad entity, that he was doing a job, and he was just kind of annoyed with the people working with him, kind of like in a bad mood. Uh, and that's the feeling I got, and I shared that with Terry, and he said he got the exact same feeling, that the guy wasn't evil or whatever. He was just doing a job, and maybe he wasn't, he didn't have good bedside manner, obviously. But maybe you can't when you're an in, a giant insect or whatever. <laughs> maybe it's not possible. Um, but that, that was that experience in 1973. I call it special processing. And uh, so when I had this experience in 77, uh, I had already gone through something that my friend Ernie had not. So that I guess I was facilitating it. And uh, I don't know if you want me to share the experience in 78, but um, that was actually a, a very uh, uh, – helpful experience. I don't necessarily think of these things as bad. I mean, they're scary when you think about it, but the one in 78 is clearly not a bad experience. I call it a rescue operation. And I was at a very low point in my life, and I knew I was. I, I had uh, consciously, I remembered, uh, and I shared this with, uh, uh, with Yvonne, I remember sleeping in my brother's garage, and all of a sudden there was this column of fire. And I think we discussed it maybe in our first uh, video we did together. And that was my impression, that it was kind of a demonic experience. You know, this column of fire, it was very, very clear in my mind what I remember. And Yvonne said, I think there's, there's more to that story. Maybe we should explore that. And sure enough, as I got more into it and went into the subconscious state, that kind of column of fire became kind of a, uh, a particle beam where I was in a, not a tube of fire, but in a, uh, like I was particles, and the, the beam, I was being carried up in this beam, and I was brought into a, uh, a ship again, and I don't have as clear memories of being on a table or anything, I just remember being taken out of that situation, and then delivered back, and I remember I became the, the, the field of stars, uh, and I was able to go through that and, uh, and settle into it. I remember the smells, you know, from the smell of the garage to this kind of antiseptic smell within this craft or whatever. And, uh, but what was really shocking is 
what came back to me at the end of this regression was why I was what I was about to do before the column of fire appeared in my conscious memory, and that's that I was suicidal. I was suicidal, and I that was a tough thing to recall. It's a tough thing to talk about now. It's a tough thing, obviously, at, at the time, but I was at a, such a low point in my life. I had disappointed my father, my girlfriend, my brother. I didn't have a job. I, w I just considered myself a complete loser, and I dropped out of college, and just all these terrible things. And uh, I remember I had a knife in my hands, uh, and I was preparing to do something with it. I was just trying to decide how I was going to do it. And it was at that point that the, the fire or the particle appeared. So that's why I call it a rescue operation. So I don't think necessarily these ab abductions are, um, are a bad thing. I think that it, it was, I think it was actually an attempt to, or it was a, uh, a rescue of somebody who has, I think I have a mission, and obviously I, I needed to continue, and, I, and they intervened. I think it was an intervention. It was an intervention. But it's interesting that the screen memory of it was this kind of, uh, and actually Anzar doesn't call it a screen memory. He calls it, uh, I can't remember what he calls it, but he has another name for it. I'll try to remember. But uh, was this kind of demonic thing. And I guess that's the first thing a person who grew up in a very traditional home <clears throat> in the Lutheran church would think of it, you know, anything like that would be demonic. It wouldn't be, you wouldn't jump to alien, you'd jump to demonic, you know, because that's what you're taught. Anything out, you know, like that. Um, so that was a, that was a very, uh, very enlightening experience. And it was tough to write about. It's tough to talk about now to have said that. But then, um, <clears throat> when I think about it, you know, we had um, depression in our family. You know, my, my mother's father had committed suicide in northern Norway and left eight children behind. So, you know, those are things that uh, a tendency for people to be depressed and maybe have that uh, those thoughts, you know. But luckily, since then, I've, you know, I've been fine. I mean, I've had struggles, but not to that point, you know, that was at a very low point. So anyway, that's what happened in 1978. Now, the experience you had uh, even earlier when you were a young child was also kind of a rescue operation, as, as I recall, where you, there were bad people in the neighborhood. Yes, uh, the house above us, <clears throat> I always knew there was something strange about them. Uh, Man and a woman. They were also uh, 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 Norwegian, uh, or the this, the the sons and daughters of Norwegian immigrants. My parents were actually Norwegian immigrants, but anyway, they were younger than my parents, and they would babysit me occasionally. And I always thought there was something strange because when I, you know, I was like I guess six years old, and I remember going up there, and and the the lady would leave. She was a business lady. And the man would stay there and kind of watch us, and it was his kids. I think they had three kids, uh, I think two boys and a girl or two girls and a boy. And then other neighborhood kids would come in, and he would act like a, like a child, and he was a grown man. And I thought, there's something weird about that, and why he's acting like a child. And he would uh, uh, give us these little Dixie cups that he said was Kool-Aid, but it didn't smell like Kool-Aid. Now I know it was alcohol, but at the time I thought, it, you know, he said it was, I wouldn't drink it. And then he had this game where he would go hide in a dark closet, and we were supposed to go into the closet with him and close the door. I would never do it. Other kids did it, and I, I just wouldn't do it. And uh, so I have these conscious memories of that, uh, and that I didn't want to go there. And at a certain point, I just said, I'm not going to go there anymore. And my mom said, okay, you don't have to go to their house anymore. Um, at the same time, while all this is going on, I had, and we've talked about it before, these two uh, playmates that I had. People would call them invisible playmates. Uh, they were real to me, you know, um, uh, John and Johnny. Johnny was a little kid like me, and John was an adult, which is a weird thing that I would have an adult playmate and a child playmate together that would show up together, but we would play in the backyard. And um, I forgot the word you used. It wasn't... Uh, Imaginary, but imaginal, right? Imaginal yes. playmate, yes. That's a great word, imaginal. Um, so so this was going on at the same time, and I thought, 
why do I have this adult as a as a playmate? You know, it doesn't make any sense because he didn't play with us. He just kind of stood there like this, you know, and kind of watched us. And my first thought was that I wonder if it's some kind of representation, because I called him not only John, I called him Big Bad John. And, of course, there was a, a, a song by Jimmy Dean at the time called Big Bad John. So that was in my head. And for some reason, I had thought, I wonder if I'm really thinking about this bad guy in that house. But as it turned out, uh, no. Uh, Big Bad John was actually some type of entity that was actually protecting me. And I think there was two entities, him and another one that was older. And I suspect that the older one, and I've, I've asked Anzar if that was him, and he at first didn't really answer, and he said that it was. So I've had dealings with Anzar at least since 1964. And this other big bad John was actually somebody who was assigned to me to kind of help. And uh, so as it turned out, you know, uh, uh, Ansar, and when I went into the regression, there were some very interesting things I remembered about this golden ship and being shown controls in this ship, uh, spaceship, and um, it was all in, in, like a, in, in like a hologram, you know, like I wouldn't even have to leave my room. I would see what this was go happening in my backyard. And, um, and, if you're, and if people are thinking, well, you know, that's kind of weird. Why would these alien entities be in that area? Well, I only lived a quarter mile away from a Nike missile site. And there is some kind of connection between UFO activity and uh, nuclear sites. Now, some of the Nike sites were nuclear, some weren't, and I'm not sure if mine was, but there was definitely one a quarter mile above our house. So anyway, uh, as we, my brother found out uh, now about 10 years ago, he was at his Sons of Norway dinner, and uh, the, uh, um, the sister of that lady that lived up there uh, was there, and my brother asked, whatever happened to those people? You know, whatever happened to that couple? And she said, uh, well, we don't speak to them anymore because it turned out the husband was a child molester. So I put it all together, and I thought, okay, there was an intervention there to help me and uh, so that I wouldn't go back up there because eventually something would have happened. And then I remembered, not during the regression, but later, because Yvonne always says that a couple days later, memories start to flood back on your own. And one of the things I remembered is what that guy would tell us, not just me, but the other kids in that house. He would say, what's your worst fear? What is your worst fear? And I said two things. One was the devil, because, you know, I grew up in a Lutheran house, so, you know, that religious upbringing, the devil I was afraid of. And the other thing I was afraid of was if I was going to stop breathing, because I, would ha I had um, croup a lot, you know, where you, you have difficulty breathing. Um, and I said, yeah, I'm afraid, that, I'm afraid of the devil and I'm afraid of uh, uh, not breathing, you know, not being able to breathe. And he told me very seriously, like he told the other kids too, he said, um, well, if you, if you tell anybody about what we're doing here, uh, the devil will come and make you stop breathing. What a terrible thing to tell a six-year-old, you know. But he was protecting himself in his illicit activities. So luckily, I never, I never went back up there. So, but it was validated when my brother found out, you know, when he heard from that uh, the sister of the of the lady. So, yeah. So it's it's all very interesting how this all comes together. Both the through the hypnotic regression, through the memories that you that flood back afterwards out of your subconscious, and also your uh, your conscious memories and how when you put that together along with other people's testimony, like my brother adding to that story. Um, it, it really puts in a big, and then figuring out, well, what was this, why did I have this adult imaginal playmate, you know? So it all kind of fits together nicely now. And as, as I recall in your conversations with Anzar, he explains to you that he was there watching you and that the other Big Bad John entity was a colleague of his, I think, named Ergo. Yeah, Ergo, yeah. E-R-G-O-T, there we go, yeah. <laughs> yeah, E-R-G-O-T, like uh, <laughs> the LSD. <laughs> but now, as I seem to recall also that this is where the idea that you were a hybrid, that's why they were there watching you from your childhood. 
Yeah, I think, uh, and and I I hate to get into the realm that somehow that I'm special or unique because I don't think I am. I think there's a lot of people that have, you know, these experiences, but not all of them are willing to talk about them. I think I think all of us are connected. And uh, but yeah, that's where I I kind of got the idea uh, from from that you know th- that experience that regression experience. I started to ask questions about it, and uh, and I've often asked. I said, "Am, am I?" Uh, you know, when I ask Anzari, he says that we are connected. You know, and uh, it's not like like I said, it's not like first generation. <laughs> I think it's some some time back. Well, you know, I recall this would have been about 30 years ago back in San Francisco. I was at some event relating to consciousness and I recall one person, uh, there must have been three or four hundred people in the room. Somebody got to the microphone and said, how many of you remember your past lives in the Pleiades? And I believe about a hundred hands went up. So I, I'm inclined to think uh, that all, that people, if we assume uh, that reincarnation occurs and there's good evidence for it, does it have to be limited to uh, only the Earth? Could it be that there are you know other places or spaces uh, where reincarnation uh, occurs uh, and that humans uh, migrate here um, across lifetimes from other locales? Now, I know that's a very far out hypothesis, but I, I can at least say a sizable numbers of people accept that that's true. That's their inner reality. Yeah. No, I, I think that is really interesting. And I... You know, I, I just go back to what Gene said in his very colloquial way when he said, we are the aliens, which is just, it's fascinating to me because it's both so simple, but it's also complex as well. Because, well, what does that mean? <laughs> I mean, does it mean we're all the aliens or there are no aliens that we are, you know, we're all one? I mean, you know, this one consciousness or what? I mean, it could mean so many different things. Uh, or, you know, did I, I asked him, I said, Gene, well, do you mean you, you know, like you and Anzar, you're the aliens and, you know, I'm not. And he goes, no, we, as in you too. And Oh, okay. So that's where I got that idea is both reinforced by my friend Gene and also from, from Anzar. And uh, I, 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 I didn't, I don't think we talked about it, but I thought I should bring it up. I don't know if we have time, but. We'll make time. Okay. Um, in my first book, and this, it relates in a, in a different kind of way because it, comes back to the big question of consciousness, you know, and um, this idea of teleportation, which is fascinating to me. And I don't know why I've never talked about it in any interview, in, in any of the interviews I've done or coast to coast or the times I've been with you, I've never brought up this story. And I, and I, I can't remember if I, I know, I, I think I sent you the first book, but there's a story of in 1994 when uh, my girlfriend at the time uh, I'll call her Charlotte. I don't want to use her real name. Uh, we were having a very tough time, and I was being a jerk. You know, I, 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 frankly, I was. And uh, she ended up in a mental hospital. She was suicidal and attempted suicide. She ended up in a mental hospital. Well, I was visiting her, and I remember it was the, the University of Washington Hospital there in Seattle, and it was on the seventh floor, which is the psych ward, and I went up to visit her. And... I went to visit, and there was this strange character there. He was a, a very slight, slender man, kind of short, and he was kind of nondescript other than he had these these uh, kind of wire horn rim glasses that were kind of, or not uh, wire frame glasses that were kind of off kilter or bent, and he had kind of uh, hair going off the sides but not on top, and he was probably in his late 40s or so, and he was, his name was George. Well, Everybody else was pretty calm in that psych ward, but he was completely hyperactive. He was everywhere, he, and he was wearing his hospital gown and slippers, and he was going around this, and he was singing, and he was coming up to me and introducing himself, and and uh, you know, and then my girlfriend Charlotte told him, you know, we're just trying to talk things through, and he said, oh yeah, see what good that does you, you know. He had comments about everything. At one point, he was playing a keyboard and singing, and he was just. I'll just say that he, he seemed very crazy. The others didn't seem as you know, like that. So 
to get off that psych ward, you have to go through this guard. And, well, you have to go to the nurse's station, get a pass, then you have to um, uh, go to the guard, and he op has a key that lets you into the elevator to go down to the main floor. So we, so as George was going around, he would go from room to room, you know, doing this to people. He was still doing that as we got permission and got into the elevator. The guard let us in. That's the only way off the floor, right, is through this guard with permission. And, uh, and then she got a pass, a badge that she'd have to wear. Well, we went down to the bottom floor. And mind you, George was still on the floor when we left, right? So we went down to the bottom floor, got out of the elevator, and turned to where, because she was allowed to go outside in the garden. It was a very nice garden outside. So we were heading towards the garden. Well, lo and behold, coming from the outside towards us was George. In his hospital gown, in his slippers, and a woman on either side of it, you know, nice, attractive-looking ladies on either side. And, and we looked at each other. How did he get down here? For one thing, they're never going to let that guy off of there. And so my girlfriend, Charlotte, she asked him, uh, George, how would you get permission? And he said, I didn't, I didn't get permission. She said, where's your badge? I don't have a badge. And he said, yeah, he won't give me one. And she said, well, and I said, well, how would you get down here? And he said, I flew. And then he laughed hysterically. And the, these women were giggling beside him. And I, this is so surreal. I mean, am I imagining this or is this really happening? So I was talking to my girlfriend. And, and uh, so then he, he proceeded to go, you know, towards the other end of the, of the floor or of the, uh, you know, the ground floor. And we went outside and I asked her, I said, there's no way he can get off of there. And she said, no, you have to go through that guard. And, uh, she said, how do you think he did? And she said, well, maybe he has a twin. And I said, oh, come on now. This is not television, you know I mean? <laughs> He's got a hospital row. It's the guy we just were talking to. And I said, and who are those women? He said, well, maybe they're nurses. And I said, don't, they don't look like nurses. They look like exotic dancers. You know, they don't look like nurses that I've ever seen. And she said, well, you know, you could go and report it. And I said, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not going to go, because the next thing you know, I'll be locked up in the, in the seventh floor, you know. So I just kind of let it go. But I've thought about that for so many years, and why I've never spoken about it, because I mean, it's, it's, it's a fantastic story. So how did he get down there on the floor? And if, if you say, well, he snuck through an emergency door and got down there, we were in an elevator, so obviously that's faster. So let's say he did that. How did he get on the other end of the building coming towards us. You know, there's just no way that he physically could have done that, other than his explanation, which I take to be true, that he flew. And so this idea of teleportation, is just, it's fascinating to me. So I'm not exactly sure why I've never mentioned it in any year, maybe because it's such a fantastic story, but telling it to you, I know you've had so many experiences and heard so many different people explain these things. I thought you might have a, a, a theory about it. Well, uh, you know, Andrea Puharich uh, in his book on Uri Geller reports an example where Geller seemed to teleport from New York uh, City to Ossining, New York, about, I don't know, 30 or 40 miles. Uh, uh, so, so there are examples of, of that sort of thing in the literature. I think the intriguing thing here is the, the idea that he seemed crazy at the time. I, I think that's very interesting. I mean, maybe he was a person of special powers or even an alien, but to us, they would appear quite crazy. Yeah. I mean, he was highly intelligent, but he was, you know, just completely off his rocker. I mean, as far as he could tell in, in our, you know, polite society or whatever. And he might have just had unlimited, maybe he just didn't think that it, it was not possible to do it. And, and this idea of intention and attention and believing and empowering yourself, maybe that power was, you know, amplified by maybe his natural, but who knows? I just think it's just fascinating, and it puzzles me to this day. I still don't know how that happened. And another possibility besides teleportation is bilocation. Oh, yeah, that's true, yeah. And, and there's quite a bit of literature on that. Yeah, because... It's a different, uh, he's two places at once, and that would maybe explain these uh, these girls on either side that could have been imaginal, but, we, I, you know, I saw them, and so did my girlfriend. Yeah. So mm -hmm. who knows if they were actually in existence or not.
You know, one of the points that Whitley Strieber made when I talked to him is that he calls them the visitors. He said they can control uh, molecules and atoms. They have, you know, godlike powers if they want to exercise them. He, he said, but they would give it all up to have our experience. Well, I yeah, commend you for sharing the story with me because the natural human tendency, especially amongst college professors, is to sort of shove those stories uh, out out of sight, out of mind, you know, re re repress it. But uh, you don't do that. You're willing to bring these stories up to the light of day and to subject them to to the you know your best honest critical analysis and uh, i appreciate that very much bruce yeah well thank you for listening to me <laughs> yeah uh, once again it's been a great conversation thank you for being with me well thank you jeff i really enjoyed it and for those of you viewing this video thank you for being with us Thank you.